like you to turn in your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 1. We're going to begin a study through the book of Hebrews. And it's obvious from the opening words that Hebrews is different than most of the other letters of the New Testament. Although it ends like a letter, it doesn't begin like a letter. Notice the opening words, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son. In fact, this, this doesn't really start sounding like a letter until we get to the very last verses of the last chapter where he gives some personal information and some greetings. It doesn't open with the customary salutation with the name of the writer and the people addressed. The only other exception in the New Testament is 1 John, which doesn't start like a letter or end like a letter. So the book of Hebrews is not in the strictest sense a letter, but what it is, the writer calls in chapter 13 and verse 22, a word of exhortation. That's an interesting phrase. That's the same phrase used in Acts chapter 13 and verse 15 where Paul and Barnabas are at Pisidian Antioch and the synagogue officials turn to them and say, do you have a word of exhortation? And Paul stands up and begins to preach. So in the strictest sense, the book of Hebrews is not so much a letter as it is a sermon. And this morning, I just want to introduce us to this book by looking at several points. I've listed them in your bulletin. The first is the particulars. E.F. Scott wrote, the epistle of Hebrews is, in many respects, the riddle of the New Testament. And that's true to some extent, because when it comes to questions like who wrote it, to whom it was written, when it was written, we can only guess. But I would like to make sure that our guesses are educated guesses. So I want to ask those same questions and try to answer them this morning. First of all, who wrote Hebrews? Now most people will say that Paul wrote Hebrews. I used to have a professor who would ask the question this way, who wrote the epistle of Paul to the Hebrews? But I personally don't believe that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. And let me give you several reasons why. The writer chooses to be anonymous in this book while Paul identifies himself in all 13 of his letters. In fact, let me show you an interesting verse. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 17. 2 Thessalonians 3:17. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, and this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. What's he saying? He's saying, I do this in every one of my letters. Well, we don't have that distinguishing mark in the book of Hebrews. So I don't think Paul wrote it. Let me give you a second reason I don't think he wrote it. Hebrews doesn't reflect Paul's typical style. 
the, the typical structure of Paul's letters is that he begins with a doctrinal section, and then after the doctrinal section, he says, therefore, and he gives us a practical section. The first 11 chapters of Romans are doctrinal, and then the last five chapters are practical. The first three chapters of Ephesians are doctrinal, and then the last three chapters are practical. But when we look at the book of Hebrews, we find that it's arranged in such a way that the doctrinal sections and the practical sections are interwoven, which is not Paul's style. Let me give you a third reason I don't think Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. And that is the writer of Hebrews says something in chapter 2 and verse 3 that Paul would have never said. Look at chapter 2 of Hebrews and verse 3. Speaking of the gospel message, he says at the end of verse 3, after it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. In other words, the Lord spoke it, others heard it, and those others conveyed it to us. So the writer of Hebrews is saying that he didn't receive the message from the Lord directly. Instead, he received it from the apostles who heard the Lord. Now, what did Paul say about his message? Well, look at Galatians chapter 1 and verse 12. Galatians chapter 1 and verse 12. Notice the context in verse 11. He's talking about the gospel which was preached by me. And in verse 12 he says, For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul says, I received my message directly from the Lord. And so for that reason, I say Paul did not write the book of Hebrews. You say, well, then who wrote it? Well, we're kind of left to speculation. Some people say Apollos wrote the book of Hebrews. Remember Apollos? He's the guy who is called in Acts 18, 24, an eloquent man, and it says he was mighty in the Scriptures. In fact, a little later in that same chapter, Acts 18, 28, it says that Apollos powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the Scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. And that description really fits the content of the book of Hebrews. Others say it was written by Priscilla and Aquila. In fact, Harnack, the great German scholar, suggested that the reason the letter begins with no greetings and the reason this letter has no name given is because the main author of Hebrews was a woman, Priscilla. Now, that's an interesting theory. They were certainly qualified because in Acts 18.26, we're told that Priscilla and Aquila actually taught Apollos the way of God more accurately. So these were the people who taught Apollos this man who was mighty in the Scripture. They were qualified. Whenever you read about Priscilla and Aquila in the Bible, they've always got a, a church in their home no matter where they were living. So they were certainly qualified. However, we know they didn't write this letter because in Hebrews 11.32, the author says, time would fail me, and he uses the masculine pronoun. 
So we know that a female did not write the book of Hebrews, so it couldn't have been Priscilla and Aquila. Now I could go on, there's a lot of suggestions. Let me suggest one other name, and that is Barnabas. The Bible tells us that Barnabas was a native of Cyprus, and the people of Cyprus were known for their excellent Greek that they spoke. It's like saying somebody speaks proper English. They spoke proper Greek in Cyprus. And Hebrews is a book among the New Testament books that is the one with the most proper Greek or the most excellent Greek used. We're also told that Barnabas was a Levite. So of all the men in the New Testament church, he would have been the closest to understand the priesthood and the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. He was in line to be a priest himself. And that's really the theme of this book. And then we're also told in Acts 4.36 that Barnabas' real name was not Barnabas, it was Joseph. Barnabas was his nickname. And we're told what Barnabas means, remember? Son of encouragement or son of exhortation. That's the same Greek word used at the end of Hebrews when he says, bear with this word of exhortation. So some see that as a play on words. Bear with this word of encouragement from the son of encouragement. So who is the writer? I'm convinced it's not Paul. And if he forced me to guess... I would say Barnabas, and if that's wrong, I'll take Apollos. But ultimately, we have to agree with Origen, one of the great teachers of the early church, when he said in the third century, who wrote the letter to the Hebrews only God knows for certain. In other words, I don't know. That's probably the best answer. Whoever he was, he wasn't real concerned about names. Because he starts this book in chapter 1, verse 1, by saying, God has spoken. And if you look over at chapter 2 and verse 6, it's interesting. He says, but one has testified somewhere saying, and then he quotes Psalm 8. Now, I like this guy. You know, don't you like to quote verses that way? Uh, somebody said somewhere in the Old Testament, boom. Uh, ch chapter 3, verse 7, he says, Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, and then he quotes Psalm 95. And even when he makes reference to the writer, look at chapter 4 and verse 7. He says, he again fixes a certain day today saying through David. He doesn't say David says. He says, God the Holy Spirit spoke through David. And so we have a writer here in Hebrews who's not, who's not real concerned about the, the human writers and getting their names right, what he wants to convey to us as he starts this book is that God has spoken, and that's the issue. Now, who is it written to? Well, I'm not going to waste your time by getting into all the conjecture because it's really conjecture on who this letter is written to. The two most prominent guesses are Rome and Jerusalem. And the real hint we have is found in chapter 13 and verse 24, where at the end of this book, the writer says, those from Italy greet you. Now the question is, does that mean he's writing from Italy to somewhere else, or is he writing from somewhere else to Italy? I think you can make either argument. It's kind of like if I was writing a letter to a church in North Carolina and I said, those from Missouri 
greet you. But it's just as likely that somebody in North Carolina where there's a bunch of transplanted Missourians could write to us in Missouri and say, those from Missouri greet you. So I think what we know from that phrase is that it, it, it is either written from Italy or it's written to Italy. Personally, I think it was written from Italy and I think it's written to either the church in Jerusalem or a church right around Jerusalem. Let me real, real quickly give you the reasons I think that. Number one, this is a church made up of Jewish believers. That's why the title is Hebrews. There's no reference in here to Gentiles or even with getting along with Gentiles, which was a big issue in the churches outside of Palestine. It, it's a book filled with quotes from the Old Testament and reference to the temple and the sacrifice and the, and the priesthood, things that really wouldn't be big issues to Gentile Believers, And they, really, the impression you get from reading this book is that these people are very close to, in proximity, the trappings of Judaism. So I think it's written to the church in Jerusalem or one nearby. Um, second reason is it was a church started by a number of apostles according to chapter 2 and verses 3 and 4. It says... Uh, Verse 3, after it was first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also bearing witness with them both by signs and wonders and miracles and so on. So this is a church that was started by a multitude of apostles. That would be true of the church in Jerusalem, probably true of the churches around Jerusalem, not so true of churches far away because it would be unlikely that more than one or maybe two apostles would have started those other churches. And then a third reason, it was a church that had suffered much persecution, and we'll see that as we read through this book. Chapter 10 and verse 32 underlines that. It was a church that suffered greatly, and that was true of the church of Jerusalem and those around as well. When was it written? It had to be written at a late enough date to allow for these factors. Number one, these were second-generation Christians. Look at chapter 13 and verse 7. The writer says, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the outcome of their way of life, imitate their faith. So he's telling them, Observe those who led you and consider the outcome, or literally the end of their way of life, telling us that those who initially led them have died. And so these are second-generation Christians that he's writing to on this occasion. Secondly, enough time had to go by that they should have been mature by this point in time. Chapter 5 and verse 12 gives us that reference. Chapter 5 and verse 12, the writer says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid Food. They have been Christians long enough that they ought to be spiritual teachers. Instead, he says, you are in spiritual diapers. And then a, a third reason that it had to be at a later point in time is because, and this is based on my conclusion that Paul didn't write it, in chapter 13 and verse 23, he makes reference to Timothy, but he doesn't make reference to Paul. And Timothy and Paul were like joined at the hip. 
So the assumption is that Paul would have died at this point in time. Now, Paul died somewhere between 62 and 68 A.D. So it would have to be later than the death of Paul. Also, it had to be earlier than 70 A.D. because 70 A.D. is when Titus came with the Romans and destroyed the city of Jerusalem. And look at chapter 9 and verse 6. Chapter 9, verse 6. He says, Now when these things have been thus prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood when he offers for himself, and so on. Now those are present tense verbs. What it tells us is these priests are doing it right now as he writes this letter. So this letter would have to be after about 65 A.D. It would have to fall before 70 A.D. because the temple sacrifices are still taking place when he writes this letter. So somewhere around maybe 67 or 68 A.D. Now, how's that for a preacher with conviction? I think it may be written by Barnabas. It's likely addressed to the church at Jerusalem in about 67 A.D. Well, I know more about the second point, so let's move to that one. The problem. In order to understand the book of Hebrews, we need to put ourselves in the shoes of these early readers. Remember when Jesus died on the cross? When Jesus died on the cross, He was the one-time sacrifice for sin. He was the Lamb of God taking away the sin of the world. And God, to make that point, tore the veil in the temple from the top to the bottom. And God was saying, now that... Jesus has been sacrificed. There is no more need for the temple. It is obsolete. There is no more need for the sacrifices. It is obsolete. It is all taken out of the way because Jesus has died. But you know what the Jews did? They sewed up the veil and they went on with their temple worship and their sacrifices and they did that for another 40 years until 70 A.D. when God really terminated the priesthood and destroyed the temple. These people are living in the closing days of that 40-year period of time. On one hand, they have come to faith in Jesus Christ. On the other hand, all the outward forms of their old religion still remain. The temple, the altar, the sacrifices, the priesthood. And these Jewish believers are confused about how the old relates to the new. Now we really see that transaction that, that take place in, in the book of Acts. Because the book of Acts is about the church in Jerusalem. When the church started, it was really all Jewish people in the church. And if you remember in the book of Acts, it says in Acts chapter 2 and verse 46 that the early church met daily where? In the temple. So here's this early church. They started out as a church, but they're meeting in the Jewish temple. And to kind of understand their confusion, I want you to look at Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21. And verse 20. Paul comes to Jerusalem and reports about all the blessings God is doing among the Gentiles. 
And verse 20 says, And when they heard it, they began glorifying God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed, and they are all, they are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs. Now these were people who were believers, thousands of believers, but they are zealous for the law and they are taking offense at the teaching of Paul because Paul is teaching them to forsake Moses, that is the law, to not circumcise their children and not to walk in the traditions. In fact, when you get down to verse 26, you get the indication that some of them were even still offering sacrifices. And they were saying they are believers in Jesus Christ. So that's a very confused situation. That's why I say that this book of Hebrews is written to the church in Jerusalem. Because here in Acts chapter 21, what is taking place is about 10 years before this book of Hebrews is written. And these people really fit the description of the kinds of people that this book is written to. The early church that started out in Jerusalem had been scattered in chapter 8 and verse 1. They were scattered all over the place by persecution. Now here we are years later, and there's thousands of believers there, but they're not being scattered because they are more involved with the temple and the temple worship. And so he's addressing this issue. In fact, some had gone, gone so far in the church of Jerusalem that they were telling Gentile believers in Acts 15.1, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. In other words, to be saved as a Christian, you first have to be circumcised as a Jew. And that false teaching was dealt with in the council at Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. But see, for these Jewish people in Jerusalem, their involvement in the temple rituals and offerings was simply something that they looked on as a tradition. They would just say, well, this is just a cultural thing that we're doing. It has nothing to do with our faith in Jesus Christ. But with the passing of time, the writer of Hebrews is looking at this church and he's noticing that they have not progressed past what he calls in chapter 6 and verse 1, the elementary teachings about the Messiah. In other words, they're claiming to be Christians, but they're really sticking to those issues that they would agree with the Jews about. The elementary teachings about the Messiah in the Old Testament. The ABCs of the Old Testament Scriptures. So to sum it up, we would have to say that this church's problem is that they are immature. He tells them at the end of chapter 5, you ought to be eating meat, but instead you're having to drink baby milk. They're immature. They're also holding on to the old, and I think the reason they're holding on to the old, the temple, the altar, the sacrifices, was to eliminate some of the suffering. Remember one of the reasons why Jesus was crucified was that he was falsely accused that he had said that he was going to destroy the temple and in three days build it again. And that was a hot button for the Jews. Remember why they stoned Stephen? It says in, in Acts 6.13 that somebody said, this man incessantly speaks against this holy place and against the law. So you see, as a Jew in Jerusalem, if you wanted to dodge the stones, what you had to do was hold on to the law, participate in the temple, and practice the traditions. And that's what they were doing. 
And then not only that, but some of them were forsaking their assembling together as believers. Remember Hebrews 10.25 says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the habit of some is. So some in the church were not even participating in the meetings of the local church. And then all of them, or most of them, seemed to be looking over their shoulder at Judaism that they had left behind, and they were tempted to go back. You see, that's their problem. Now, anybody who studies Hebrews has to try to define the precise spiritual condition of these readers. Some people say that the readers are all true believers, and they are in danger of losing their salvation by going back to Judaism. Others say that they are not true believers, they're just professors of Christ, and they are looking at going back to Judaism, and that is simply apostasy. Personally, I think it's clear that both kinds of people existed in this church, just like both kinds of people exist in every church. In fact, if you look at chapter 6 and verse 9, you'll see that the writer gives his opinion of their spiritual condition. Chapter 6 and verse 9. After giving a rather stern warning, he says in verse 9, But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. You see, most in the church that he's writing to are believers, and he's convinced about better things concerning them, but there are those in that church, just like there are those in every church, that are professors and not possessors of Jesus Christ. And because most of the unbelievers were immature, the writer was having a difficult time telling the difference. You say, well, Dan, if this letter is written to Jewish believers in the first century who were hanging on to the law, then how's that going to apply to us today? Well, I think the answer is real obvious. Because even though we're not Jewish, and even though we are not back in the first century when the temple existed and the law was there and all the trappings, I find that most people today think about their relationship with God in terms of the law and rituals. When I talk to people about how they think they're getting to heaven, it's amazing what they will say. They, they will see, say things like, well, I'm, gonna, I'm doing the best I can, and if I go to church and say the creeds and say the prayers, and if, if, if my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, then I think God's going to let me into heaven. What is that? That's law. And you know what? I find the same problem with Christians. I find a lot of Christians who come to faith in Jesus Christ by grace, and then they try to live their Christian life by law. We come by faith in Jesus Christ alone, and then we lay out our Christian life, and it's a bunch of do's and don'ts. It's a creed of things we have to do. It's a list of obligations, and we carry them out in our flesh. What is that? That's law. We're going back under the Old Covenant. The whole book of Galatians is written because Christians were struggling with that same issue. So this book is going to apply 
to us today, wherever you find yourself. Thirdly, we see the purpose. What's the purpose of this book? Let me give you four purposes that I see. Number one is to establish the supremacy of Jesus Christ. From the outset of this book, it is clear that the writer wants to tell us that Jesus Christ is superior to everyone and everything. He establishes Jesus' deity in chapter 1 and verse 3, and then he goes on to show us that Jesus is greater than the Old Testament prophets. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than Aaron. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Joshua. He's greater than Abraham. He's greater than Levi. He has a greater tabernacle in heaven. He has a greater priesthood, that of Melchizedek. He has a greater covenant the new covenant. And He is Himself the greater sacrifice, the ultimate once-for-all sacrifice. One of the key words in the book of Hebrews is better. It's used 13 times. In chapter 8, verse 6, we read that Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant enacted, chapter 9, verse 23, by a better sacrifice through which we have... 719, a better hope. 86, better promises. 1034, better possessions. 1116, a better country. And 1135, a better resurrection. You see, he's saying it doesn't get any better than this. Another key word in Hebrews is the word perfect. It's used 14 times. It speaks of our perfect standing before God. Look at chapter 7 and verse 11, for instance. Look at 7.11. It says, Now if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise? The Levitical priesthood can't make us perfect. Then look at chapter 7 and verse 19. For the law made nothing per perfect. The law can't make us perfect. And then look at chapter 10 and verse 1. Chapter 10 and verse 1. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect those who draw near. The sacrifices can never make us perfect. But guess what? Chapter 10, verse 14 says, For by one offering, He, that is Jesus, has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. What the Levitical priests and the law and the sacrifices can't do, Jesus can. He makes us perfect before God. And then another key word is eternal it's used five times along with the word forever, which is used ten times. Look at chapter 8 and verse 13. This is an important verse in the book. Chapter 8 and verse 13. When he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. The old covenant, along with the old regime, is obsolete. But under the new covenant, 
we have chapter 5, verse 9, eternal salvation. Chapter 9, verse 12, eternal redemption. Chapter 9, verse 15, an eternal inheritance. Our salvation is eternal because our Savior is eternal. Our salvation is forever because our Savior is forever. Chapter 1 and verse 8 says, His throne is forever. Four times, beginning in chapter 5, verse 6, we are told that He is a priest forever. And in chapter 13 and verse 8, He sums it all up this way. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and what? Forever. You see, once we have come to Jesus Christ, why would we want to go anywhere else? He is superior to everyone and everything. And then the second purpose is to exhort a break with Judaism. And we could go into a lot of detail on this, but he really paints a vivid picture at the end of the book. I want you to go there to chapter 13 and verse 10. He says, speaking to us as Christians, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. We have an altar. Where is our altar? Verse 11, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore Jesus also, that He might sanctify the people through His own blood, suffered outside the gate. We have an altar. Where is that altar? He says it's outside the camp. It's outside the city. Where did Jesus suffer? Outside the city. So where is our altar? Our altar is the cross of Jesus Christ. And then he says in verse 13, Hence, let us go out to Him outside the camp, bearing His reproach. He's calling us to leave the city, leave the camp of Jerusalem, leave Israel with its temple and its altar and all its sacrifices and come outside the city, outside the camp, to our altar, the cross of Jesus Christ. And then notice what he makes clear in verse 10, in case you missed it. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. The altar of Israel and the cross of Jesus Christ are mutually exclusive. He says you can't partake of both. You can't rely on those sacrifices and also rely on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You can't rely on the law and also rely on grace. And so he is exhorting them to break with Judaism. And then a third purpose of this book is to emphasize the danger of apostasy. On five occasions in this book, we're going to see warning passages. And they are strong warning passages. They are warning passages to those who have come out of Judaism. They've come up to the edge of faith in Christ. They understand the gospel. They understand all that they have to do. And now they are tempted to turn back and go back to Judaism. And he gives five warning passages challenging them not to go back. You see, in their minds, I think they think that going back to Judaism is kind of just going back to the living God. I mean, God was involved in Judaism. God's involved in the church. If we leave the church and go back to Judaism, we're really going back to the living God. But notice what he says to them. Look at chapter 3 and verse 12. 
Just for one example, chapter 3 and verse 12. He says, Take care, brethren, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God. See, when they go back to Judaism, they're not going back to the living God. They are falling away from the living God. You say, well, why is it such a big deal to God if they turn around and say, no thanks to the sacrifice of Jesus, I'm going back to the blood of bulls and goats. Why is that such a big deal? Look at chapter 6 and verse 6. The end of that verse says, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. They have come to understand the gospel. They understand the sacrifice of Jesus. And they say, no thanks, I'm going back to Judaism. He says, you are essentially saying again, crucify Him, crucify Him. We will not have this man to reign over us. In fact, look over in chapter 10 and verse 29. Again, strong words. He says, how much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace. They have come up to the point of the cross and now they understand fully what Jesus did. They have made a profession verbally of commitment to him. And he says, when you go back to Judaism, you have to trample underfoot the Son of God. Quite an image. In fact, if you look down at verse 31 of that same chapter, we're reminded it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so this book is written to warn us of the dangers of apostasy. Apostasy simply means turning away from Jesus Christ. And then there's a fourth purpose, and that is to encourage endurance. The, the reproaches and the persecutions and the sufferings that these Christians were, experience, were experiencing were discouraging them. So he says to them in chapter 10, and verse 35, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance. Don't throw away your confidence. You have need of endurance. And to help them with that, he gives two examples. When you come over to chapter 11, he lists the Old Testament heroes of faith who endured despite the obstacles, the hardships, the suffering. And then that's not the only example he gives because when you get to chapter 12 and verse 2, he talks about Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. You have need of endurance. Look at the Old Testament saints. Look at the heroes of faith in the Old Testament who endured. Look at Jesus who endured the cross. And then in between, what does he say? Chapter 12 and verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Look back at the Old Testament saints who lived by faith. Look forward to Jesus who endured the cross by faith. And you run with endurance the race that is set before you. See, the Christian life is not a sprint. It's a marathon. And we need endurance to live by faith in Him. 
And so his purpose is to establish the supremacy of Jesus. So we will not be looking over our shoulder at the old, but we will be looking forward to Jesus and running with endurance. Now we don't have time to cover the next two points. I was a little ambitious in my outline. So, so I want you to scratch those two points out. We'll get to those next week. But I do want you to add a fourth point. And that fourth point is, a, is another P, the preview. Because I was thinking, you know, if, if Hebrews were a movie, and, and we were going to give you a preview this morning, you know, just the, the preview of, of, what do they call those? Uh, I'm sorry? Coming attractions. Thank you. Here's a preview of the coming attractions in the book of Hebrews. This is the preview I would give you. Look at chapter 8 and verse 1. The writer says, Now the main point in what has been said is this. That's important. The writer says, This is the main point that I want to get across. What is it? We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Now, someone has said that in order to understand the book of Hebrews, you have to first understand the book of Leviticus. Now, Leviticus, you remember that book. That's when you start reading the Old Testament. You read Genesis. It's pretty exciting. Exodus, pretty exciting. Get to Leviticus and you go, ah. And you kind of slow down and you're reading. You think, this is, I don't get it. Leviticus is all about the Levitical priesthood and all of their responsibilities and all the sacrifices and how many animals you have to sacrifice for this and how many animals you have to sacrifice for that and all the procedures and all that's going on there. And it's very laborious to read through Leviticus and try to understand what's going on. What's clear from Leviticus is that a priest's work is never done. They've got sacrifices for this. You know, it might be a, a bull. It might be a turtle dove. They've got all these sacrifices for all the different sins in Israel. A whole lot of bloodshed. But the priest's work is never done. In fact, if you go back and you look at the description of the furniture in the temple, you know what's interesting about the furniture in the temple? There are no chairs. The priest's work was never done. He never took a break. He never sat down because he was continually working. In fact, the writer of Hebrews points that out in chapter 10 and verse 11. It's a great point. He says in, in chapter 10 and verse 11, he says, Every priest, notice, stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. He stands, why? Because he has to continually offer sacrifices and they're really worthless. They never take away sins. Verse 12, But he, Jesus having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And why did he sit down? Verse 14, For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. So if you want a preview of the book of Hebrews, it's not action-packed. It's actually very quiet. The preview is Jesus as our high priest sitting down in heaven bearing the scars of the nails in his hands and his feet. And what does that picture represent to us? 
It represents that the work is done. That's the message. Jesus, our high priest, is sitting down in heaven because the work is done. You cannot add one more thing to your salvation. What you simply have to do is receive it by faith. And if you will get that mental image of Jesus, our high priest, sitting down because the work is done, you will understand the message of the book of Hebrews. In fact, if you get that mental image, you will understand the message of the entire Bible because that's what God is trying to say to us. The thing that's written across the pages of Scripture is what Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. The work is done. It is complete. Salvation has been paid for and we simply have to come by faith in Jesus Christ to experience all the better promises that He has given to us. Before we close in prayer, I'm going to ask Carol Shackelford to come forward. Or at least you can get up right there in the middle aisle because you're right in the center. Carol, of course, was baptized this morning and, and, and I'm going to ask Carol to head out to the lobby and after we're, we're finished, I encourage you to uh, give her a hug and a word of encouragement this morning. Let, let's pray together. Father, thank you for our time today as we've tried to capture this great book, the book of Hebrews. And Father, I feel like we, we just kind of grabbed some loose ends and tried to pull them together. Father, I pray that you would bless as we seek to go through this great book verse by verse, that you would help us to understand it. And Father, for those who are here today who are still convinced that they have to work their way to you, I pray that you would clearly impress upon them the fact that Jesus has already done all the work. That He is seated in heaven because He's finished. And what He wants from us is to be people of faith who trust in what He has done on our behalf. And Father, for those who may be Christians who have come to faith in Jesus Christ but are trying to live their Christian life by effort and by sweat and by determination, Lord, I pray that we might truly understand as well that the work has been done and that we might put our confidence in the one alone who deserves it, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we will be careful to give him all the glory in his worthy name. Amen.